Hi, Bill. I just wanted to say real quick, thank you so much for reading from Frankenstein this evening. I really enjoyed listening to it. It's another one of my favorite stories. And you really brought the monster to life. I'm telling you, um, I probably won't sleep tonight or any night for the next few nights, probably. Good evening, Bill. Peter here, or as our friend Uncle Forey called me, the Lord High Minister of all that's sinister. I've been told by my friends, Boris and Bela, about your stories, and, well, after catching up on them, I'm hooked. <laughs> Dragon Slayer Audio. Good evening. This is Bill Obers Jr. Welcome to the Moonlit Library. Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. I'll bet you could say that right along with me, couldn't you? Lupus es diable. As nobis lupus, the wolf is the devil. We are the wolf. I speak of transformations. I speak of the casting off of outer skins to reveal what was always there underneath. For nothing is hidden which will not be made known. Hmm? Pardon my manners. Please, come in, my friend. Come in. You're very welcome to this strange and silent place. You just move that pile of dusty books off the old overstuffed chair there. Your old library keeper isn't the best housekeeper. There's wine, if you'll have some. It's a Montiato. I just brought it up in the cellar. Very good year. You sit down. I'll light these candles, and we'll visit for a while before bedtime, hmm? Oh, man, is such a social creature. Woman, too. Isn't that true? Don't we need each other? God, how we need one another. And how we close doors on one another, and lock ourselves into our own terrible dungeons. I think it's because we're afraid. But not tonight. Tonight, as you sit here, beneath the gaze of gargoyles, under the spell of a maiden moon, in the shadow of giants, you are not alone. We are not alone. We are surrounded by a vast cloud of friends. I do mean the ghost of this place and of these books. Of course I mean those, but too, I mean the people across this planet. People in 19 different countries who listen to these broadcasts from the Moonlit Library. You are a part of the family tonight. You are 
one of the monsters. A family of malformed misfits, fantastic freaks. We, happy few, we, the monstrum deus. We, the monsters of God. We are obscure volumes among obscure volumes, dust to be among dust that is. I'm so glad you made the journey. I'm so glad you're here. Before tonight's lycanthrope lesson, I have a favor to ask of you, if you will. There are only two episodes left in this first season of Gothic Goodnight, and after that, the first 13 episodes will be compiled, along with some new added stories, into an Audible.com exclusive. We'll call it The Gothic Goodnight Companion. Now, that means that these broadcasts will be available as long as there is Audible. That means they'll be available to many future generations. To humans who may come across Gothic Goodnight in some future holographic library, they may wonder who we were. I'd like to tell them who we were. I would like to leave these future listeners a time capsule of sorts, a time capsule of what we've just been through, what we think we may go through. Now we've done it. Now they might face their own Rubicons, times of plague, disaster, their own unease. There's a mechanism by which you can leave a voice message for this show. If you'll go to speakpipe.com slash Bill Oberst Jr., you can record a message of up to 90 seconds for free. The link is right there in your show notes. I would like our 13th episode and our final episode of this season to include your voice. As many of you as would care to leave a message for future generations who may listen to the show on Audible on devices as yet unimagined. What would you say to them, the yet unborn? What would you say to those who will be inheriting our space in the cosmos? We've been on the air since the world changed. We've been comforting ourselves with dark stories while living in a very dark story ourselves. What's it been like for you? And what message would you like to leave for the future times about us, about you, about them, about the dark, about the light, I know you have something to say, and I'd be honored to include your voice in our 13th and last episode of this season. Would you consider taking part in this audio time capsule? 
by adding your voice? Thank you for considering it. Thank you. No matter where you are in the world, my friend, your voice matters. No matter what you have or don't have or have done or haven't done, your voice matters. You matter. Well, end of sermon. Just go to speakpipe.com slash Bill Oberst Jr. and you'll have up to 90 seconds to leave your message for those who may stumble upon the moonlit library in the aftertimes. If you'll add your voice, I'll play it on next week's show and include it in the Audible collection for all time. Well, for as long as we last. <laughs> Planet Earth. Thank you. Now, let's throw ourselves to the wolves, shall we? The quote we opened the show with, even a man who is pure at heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. That's by screenwriter Kurt Siodmak. It's from 1941. And the second, Lupus des Diable es nobis lupus. The wolf is the devil, we are the wolf. That's from a 17th century Jesuit priest. And there are older references. Herodotus, the father of history, wrote in ancient Greece in 425 B.C. of a tribe of nomadic peoples that he called the Neri. He wrote, In the generation before their land was invaded by Darius, the Neri were plagued by vast numbers of serpents from the deserts. Being thus tormented, they abandoned their native soil and became wandering sorcerers. Once every year, each of them becomes a wolf. After a few days, the wolf again resumes the original human form. So it is reported by the Greek settlers among them. They will never persuade me to believe this, although they asserted roundly and confirm their statement by a solemn oath. He wrote that in 425 B.C. And Sophocles said that the wolf was held in such honor by the Athenians that whosoever slays a wolf must collect what is needful for its burial and with due respect lay it properly to rest. Perhaps because you may not know if the wolf is one of your neighbors. There are tales of human-to-animal transformations in almost every culture. Not all of them are wolves. Please forgive my professorial turn. I've been spending time with a very strange teacher. Augustus Montague Summers, the author of The Vampire, his kith and kin, and of the volume from which tonight's selection is drawn, The Werewolf in Lore and Legend. Montague Summers was an English clergyman, maybe. He, he claimed to be a priest, but there's no record that he was ever ordained. Whatever he was, 
He was dark. He was a fierce researcher who was obsessed with the supernatural. The man was insane. Or the man was a genius. I've been reading him for 30 years, and I still don't know which. I do know that his books are almost impossible to read. They're so dense, so full of tangents and entire pages of Latin and Greek and French and German with no translation, footnotes almost as long as the chapters, rabbit holes within rabbit holes, onions with more onions at the center. Yes, there's a reason that Montague Summers' books are up on high shelves with layers of dust on them. But dive down enough rabbit holes and you might find a rabbit. Summer's research is not easy to read and it's not easily digestible, but it is crazy interesting. And to this day, his collection, this strange, obscure man who dressed as if he came from another century and drew stairs on the streets and said he was a priest, but nobody could prove that he was. His collection of documentations of vampire and werewolf infestations of ancient cultures remains without parallel. Because who would want to investigate such things nowadays, hmm? Oh, yes, we speculate today, but... Who really wants to wade through oceans of parchment and papyrus for years and years in search of references to things which are impossible in the first place? It's much more fun to tweet. But we can be glad that Montague Summers did it. Madman that he was. Because thanks to him, the people of the superstitious past. People like us, they have a voice. And we have ears. So, let us hear tonight. Let's listen to them. Hmm? Turn down the lights now. Turn them off. I know you've things to do. But trust me, it's better in the dark. Now settle down and sink deep, deep into what Ray Bradbury called the Aquarium of Time. Look out the window. See the moon coming down the window. Now look up further and see the vaulted ceiling. See the gargoyles. See the stacks of books, two and a half stories up. Let your eye fall down the stone wall. Down, down. Yes. Breathe in the moon dust. Breathe out the terrors of your day. Now you're ready. Thank you. I'll read to you for a bit now. Just do your drowsy. From Montague Summers, 
the werewolf in lore and legend. Summers writes, Werewolfism is a very real thing. Although werewolfism is interwoven with the Greek tradition of the Vyakralakos, or the vampire, there must in the first place be made a clear distinction between the vampire and the werewolf. The vampire is a dead body which continues to live in the grave whence it issues by night for the purpose of sucking the blood of living persons, thereby indefinitely preserving its vitality and securing its carcass from decomposition. The werewolf, however, is a living man or woman who, either by a pact with hell or some charm placed by them or upon them, is able to assume the form of a wolf. Modern-day examples of lycanthropy tend towards that of the mad peasant who dwelt near Pavia in 1541, the peasant who was so firmly convinced that he appeared in the shape of a wolf to all who beheld him, and indeed that he was actually a wolf, attacked and killed several persons in the fields, tearing their flesh with his teeth, and who, when captured, maintained stoutly that despite his obvious human appearance he was a wolf, only whereas wolves were hairy outside, his fur grew within his body. But ancient and near-ancient authorities are emphatic in their detailed insistence of cases in which persons truly and actually assumed the form of an animal, usually a wolf, their limbs and bodies in some way not understood, having been actually transformed. Indeed, in these cultures, the human body, its shape, appearance, its habits, are scoured for evidence of the malady of werewolfism. Among the Danes, for instance, it was said that if the eyebrows met so as to form a bar across the brow, this signified a werewolf. Persons with deep-set eyes were considered particularly dangerous. The eyes, in fact, of the werewolf have always been one of the most emphatically described features by those who have encountered were-creatures. They describe the eyes of a werewolf as mirrors of the bestial soul. Because the werewolf walks more easily on all fours than upright as a human being, and because its agility in clamoring and leaping limberly is almost supernatural, persons of agility, unusual for their age, have often been suspect. Although I maintain this test to be an old wives' tale, which has its origins in the devil of jealousy, more so than the mysteries of lycanthropy. Physical examinations have long been performed upon persons suspected of the malady of werewolfism. The measuring of forefingers for unusual length, corresponding to a supposed devil sign being insisted upon in Western cultures, and searches for unusual body markings being more common in Eastern cultures. In the far and near east, it has been documented that persons suffering from lycanthropy are marked, usually upon one buttock, with a circular mark, which in human form 
fades to become soft and almost indiscernible, although in beastly form it is said to be hardened, callous, and easily visible. There is considerable debate among authorities regarding the voluntary or involuntary nature of the transformation, with Eastern cultures more likely to hold werewolves to be victims of spells or powers beyond their rational control, and Western authorities tending to adhere more rigorously to the notion that all were-creatures are willing servants of the devil. The latter group also holds that werewolves retain their human reason, although they cannot exercise the power of speech, and they believe that a person who has become a were-creature is still in powers of reason, a thinking human being who, despite the powers of reason, chooses to surrender to the shedding of blood. The cultures in which werewolves, while feared in animal form, are held to be pitied in human form, counter this belief with their assertion that persons known to have undergone such transformations report an immense weariness and sadness after their nocturnal expeditions in beastly forms, and to being heavily overcome with weariness more so than if they had completed a rough journey afoot with the greatest urgency. One young woman of the Near East, suspected of werebeastry, fell all at once into a coma of many weeks' duration, and upon awakening, confessed to having been overcome by weariness after returning from a foray of night savagery and devouring many sheep of the region. The young woman, having expressed sincere remorse and having agreed to make recompense to the owners of the sheep, was welcomed back to the fold of her community, no human loss having been incurred, and she experienced no further involuntary transformations. Such, however, is not the norm in the vast history of reported cases of lycanthropy. In most instances, one shudders to say, there is loss of human life. Werewolfism, as we have said at the outset, is a very real and a very hideous thing. In most places in which the phenomenon is reported, and especially in Egypt, Greece, Portugal, and Germany, the metamorphosis is affected in the moonlight. One universally common condition preliminary to the shape-shifting is that the person should strip themselves stark naked. In older, and one is inclined to believe, more reliable reports of lycanthropy, a return to the human form is accomplished by repossession of the clothes the person had doffed, and thus that the apparel which they have thrown off should be safeguarded while they are a wolf is a matter of the first importance. This protection is secured, in many reports, by urination in a circle around the garments as they lie on the ground. In very many countries, protective properties are ascribed to the act of urination. Thus the ancient phrase, Si circum min excedro, if I pissed around you in a circle, you could not move. 
so say ancient authorities. One of the best told and best documented werewolf tales of all time was related within our own lifetimes by a freedman named Nikos. His testimony, taken down just as he spoke it, runs thus. Some while since, while I was still but a slave, we used to live in Small Street, and there, as luck would have it, I fell head over heels in love with the wife of Galen, the old innkeeper. You all used to know Melissa. She came from Tartum originally, and a lovely bussing bitch she was, too. Not that I cared for her just for the sake of mutton-mongering her in a ride. No, no, no. You see, I liked her because she was good and honest. She was a frank and free wench. If I ever asked her for anything, I never got no for an answer. And if she made a coin, half of it was mine, and half mine was hers. And as far as I was concerned, too, every penny that came my way, she had the handling of. But she never failed to take one coin and make it two. Well... Her husband, good man, died at the little country house they had. There I was casting about how to get to her by hook or by crook, for I needn't tell you that you learn who your friends are when you're in a fix like that. It just so happened that my master had gone off to town to dispatch some business, and I, of course, took advantage of such a fine opportunity. I had no difficulty in prevailing upon a soldier who was staying in the house to bear me company for a good bit of the way, and to vouch for me. <laughs> he was as lusty a lad as the very devil, so I was keen not to let him lay eyes on my Melissa, and I laded him up right good with wine from my master's cellar. Well, off we sat about cockcrow, the moon shining as bright as midday. We were on the high road with the gravestones on either side when my man turned apart to do his jobs, as I thought, among the monuments, so I sat me down, singing away to myself, thinking of the good Melissa and counting the stars overhead. After a while, I look round to see what my companion was up to. E God! My heart jumped into my very mouth. He had taken off all his clothes and laid them in a heap by the road's edge. I tell you, I was as dumped as a dead man. For I saw him piss in a circle all around his clothes, and then, hey, presto, he turned into a wolf. Now, please don't think I'm joking. I wouldn't joke about such a sacred thing. I wouldn't do it for a mint of money. I say it plain to you, and I say it to God the same. Blessed be, in a trice, this fella turned into into a wolf. And thereupon he began to howl horribly, and he rubbed off full tilt into the woods. Well, I tell you, I didn't know whether I was standing on my head or my heels, and I went to gather up his clothes, and they'd all been changed into stones. I couldn't budge nor lift them. Frightened? <laughs> you don't know. I was half dead with fear. Well, I lugged out my knife, and as I made my way along, I kept thrusting it at the shadows, till at last I came to Melissa's house. And she says, If you'd only been here a little earlier, your help would have come in very pudding time. What do you mean, I says. She says a huge wolf has just broken into the place, and made sad havoc among our sheep and kine. You might think a flesher had been at work with his knife from all the blood. 
But Master Wolf didn't get off scot-free all the same, she says. No, no, I gave him a good jab across the neck with a pike. Well, she took me to bed, and right fine that was, but I tell you she slept, but I couldn't so much close an eye. No sooner was it broad daylight than I beat the hoof back to my master's, and I hurried, I can tell you, as fast as any man at card scours out with his winnings after a bill can cheat. When I got to the place where the anchor's riggings had been turned into stone, I could see nothing but a hard pool of blood. At last I reached home. And there I found the soldier abed, bleeding like an ox in the shambles, while the doctor was busy dressing a deep gash in his neck. And after that, I tell you, I could neither bite nor sup with him, not if you'd killed me for it. Well... You can think what you like of my tale. Melissa would vouch for me if she's alive, God hold her dear. But heaven help me never if I've told you a word of a lie. This story is, in my investigation, a typical one, told by common people across many cultures and many eras, told plainly, without pretense, and told without regard to the ridicule such reports are bound to be greeted with by many. From the were-tiger and the were-jaguar, the were-lion and were-leopards, to the obscenian were-hyena, the were-fox and were-wolves of China and Europe, and many more places. The belief in shape-shifting is a long and prevalent one in human society. It is, I believe, a belief founded upon fact. There. You see what I mean? The man was insane. Wasn't he? When I was a boy, I used to sneak out of the house late at night and look up at the moon. I guess I would have howled if I hadn't been afraid of waking up the neighborhood. Well, we're all under the moon now, aren't we, my friends? We've all been transformed against our will into new shapes. Do you think it's possible? I mean, to change from one form to another and then back again, presto changeo. Or having changed back, would we still bear the wounds received while we were wolves? It's too much to think about, but it's a fine thing to dream about. So, let's do that. For now, all the books are back on the shelves. 
The candles are burning low. The moon is sliding down, down, down the stone face of this ancient place and shining with what light it has to give down on you, lying there in your place of rest. So quiet now. Your eyelids are heavy, heavier, heaviest. Time for bed. And leave me a voice message in the morning, would you? It's always so good to hear your voice. It's always so good to have you here. Until next time, stay human. But feel free to howl at the moon anytime you like. Requiescat in pace, my friends. And remember, it's always midnight somewhere and in someone's soul. Good night.